You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Well, friends, we've been in this series called Finding God in the Storm, and it is a little stormy now these days. I've been thinking about how I really like to read old stories, and that might shock you with the ridiculous number of books that are behind me right now, uh, the bane of my wife's existence that I'm always getting new stories and new books. But some of my favorite stories are actually really old stories, you know, written by ancient people a long time ago. And if you like old stories, you know that the Greeks were really good at writing them. They used to write, well, things that they invented, like comedy and tragedy. That was them. They invented those things. And one of their favorite topics, favorite things to write about, was hubris. Hubris is a word they invented. And it's one that we picked up in English. It's uh, pride that is so outrageous, so egregious, so ridiculous, uh, that it always leads to destruction. It's a fundamental character flaw or a fundamental thing that you can just see in society. So when the, the Greeks were writing about things like shipwrecks or gods and heroes, they loved to bring in hubris. And whenever you saw it in a story, you knew it was just a matter of time before things fall apart, before Icarus flies too close to the sun, before Oedipus believes the world, well, really doesn't matter and that he gets to decide what happens and that he'll be the master of his own fate and the commander of his own destiny. Hubris. They found it comic and tragic, hilarious and very sad. And I've been thinking about what the Greeks would make of the fact that in the United States of America in 2020, there is an organization called the Center for Disease Control. That we believe that we are in control of disease. Now this is to say nothing negative about the CDC. I think the CDC is full of very smart people with excellent math, good learning, books, and PhDs. They are people who we should listen to. They are people who know a lot about the world. But it is ludicrous to believe that we are in control of disease, as we learn every day in our particular time and place. Not just that they're in control, but that we are in control. And I think that that's actually a real question in the Bible passage we're reading today. Who is in control if it's not us? Who's in control in the storm? Would you turn with me to Acts 27 in a Bible? It'll be in Acts 27 today. And we're going to read and stop and read and stop. We'll skip some verses here and there, so just keep a finger in this. So Acts chapter 27. When it was decided that we were to sail for Italy, they transferred Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Embarking on a ship of Adramatium that was about to set sail from ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon. You know what? I'm just going to stop us right here because I know what all of you are thinking right now. You're all thinking, yes, foreign place names. Yes, confusing ancient words. I'm hoping we're going to look at some maps, and you are right, because you guys love maps, and I know your love of maps, and so I'm going to give the people what they want today. We're going to look at a map. I know, you're all excited at home. It's good that we've muted you. So here's the situation. This is a chunk of the world called the Mediterranean Sea. Italy, the boot you recognize over here is Israel, down here, Africa, Libya in particular. 
And what's going on in our story is this. Paul has been in prison, probably for a couple of years, in a place called Caesarea. And he's being transferred. His custody has been transferred to a guy named Julius, who's a centurion, which is to say he's a government official and a soldier. So somebody who works for the government, but also someone who knows a little bit about the world and the way that it works. He's not naive. He's not young. He's someone who's been around the block a few times and who's not to be trifled with. But this guy, it turns out, is a pretty good guy, and he's in control. They go to a boat, and in the ancient Roman world, he could just say, we are going to get on your boat, and I'm bringing prisoners with me. And that was just okay. That's how it works. In ancient Rome, the government tells you what to do, and you say, okay. And so they get on a boat, and they sail to Sidon, which is a port city right about here. And then what's going to happen is their boat is going to sail around Cyprus, off the coast of Pamphylia and Cilicia. So this is Asia, which you and I think of as Turkey, but which they called Asia. And they stop in this little city called Mira. And what's going to happen is the boat that they were on will decide not to keep sailing. Because it's wintertime. It's after the fast, the Day of Atonement. It's October, maybe November. And only a crazy person would try to set sail across the Mediterranean Sea in October or November. It's a terrible idea. Hubris, they would say. But the Roman centurion is going to find another boat that's headed to Italy, because that's where he wants to go. And they're going to set sail for Snidus, which is very hard to say. And they're going to get here. And they're going to get here through a lot of work. So all the way here, it's been very smooth sailing. But now the wind is getting much worse. And it's really difficult. And it's growing very dangerous. Because this is winter in the Mediterranean Sea. And they're going to sail from Snidus. And they're going to try to go directly west, because that's where Italy is. This is Greece. But what's going to happen is they're going to get forced south toward Africa because the wind will change. And they're going to end up underneath Crete, and they're going to stop at a place called Fair Havens right here. And near Fair Havens is a little city that you might know of as Phoenix, which we're all very familiar with. This is a very different Phoenix. They have ocean, so a better Phoenix, we might say. But Phoenix is a good spot to spend the winter. It's, it's a nice little city. And it's just along the coast underneath Crete. And right now they're sheltered from the wind, so they're going to feel pretty good about their chances of making it. That's what's happening in the story. There's going to be a lot of debate. Do we stay at Fair Havens? Do we go to Phoenix? If we do that, will we be blown south to Africa, or can we make it? Can we make it to Italy? So we're going to pick this back up at verse 9. We just covered all the other verses in between. Since much time had been lost, and sailing was now dangerous, because even the fast had already gone by, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I can see that this voyage will be danger." and much heavy loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Since the harbor was not suitable for spending the winter, the majority was in favor of putting out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, where they could spend the winter. It was a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest. So, it's really nice to know, I think, that the Bible isn't talking about made-up places. It's nice to know that if you look at a map and you think about the ancient world, you'll know these things actually happened. Luke, when he's telling this story, the guy who wrote Acts, is saying things like, we were on a boat. He's saying, I was there, I saw this, I'm taking notes, and it's a weirdly specific journey. So the Bible isn't really a history book in the way that you and I think of history books, but there's lots of history in it, and it's reliable. Right? These are real places you can find them on a map. And Luke is saying, look, we went on this journey, and this is what happened. And it really wasn't great. 
because, well, he's not so interested in where we're going, but really who's in control. Because at first the government is in control. And the government being in control is just sort of the way we expect the world to work. It creates stability and order for our lives. It makes us feel really comfortable to know that somebody out there is in charge and that just, I can live my life and I don't have to think about it anymore. And as long as the government's in control, things have a certain kind of order to them. Whether I like it or not, somebody can tell me to get into a boat and tell me where to go. And that guy could be crazy or not. He can have hubris or not. But I think we'll be okay as long as the government's in control. But then the government suddenly discovers that they're not in control on the ocean, and that actually there's a little bit more going on, and sort of outside the power of the centurion to say, we're going to Italy, because that's not really up to you. It's sort of, well, up to the people in charge of the boat and how capable they are. And so the story shifts, right? It's no longer the government that's in control. Now it's the experts. The experts are in control. And the experts, they know something about sailing. Right? Paul speaks into this situation. Nobody cares what Paul has to say because he's the weird Jewish religious guy who's wearing chains. He's the criminal on his way to court. No one cares what Paul thinks. They care what the owner of the ship thinks. They care what the sailors think. And pretty much everybody on the ship goes, I think we can make it. The experts are in control. And experts are good people to listen to, always, because they know something, because they have experience, because they're connected to the way the world works. The problem is that experts are still human. And human beings are limited. And the most dangerous thing about experts is sometimes they believe that their expertise makes them unlimited. That their knowledge is the same thing as wisdom. And that is not true. Knowledge is not the same thing as wisdom. The problem is these experts are also out of their depth, right? The same logic that has led them to set sail when another boat said we're not going to set sail is the thing that got them with great difficulty, the thing that's already gotten them blown off course. And Paul says, why, why would we think, when other sailors don't think it's a good idea, that we can make it? Why would we think, when we're already having a lot of trouble and have already been blown off course, that that won't keep happening? I can see this, and I'm the weird religious dude in chains. I think maybe some of you on board are seeing this too, and this is wishful thinking that you think we're in control of this situation, that seems like wishful thinking to me. This is hubris. We should stop now. We should admit that we're not in control, and maybe we'll avoid some crazy losses. But sometimes people like to believe that they're in control. It's just the way that it works. Uh, you've seen this happen all over the place. It happens in business. When people lose money and lose money and lose money, and then they double down on the bet. And they say, I'm going to keep throwing good money after bad because I think we can just buy our way out of this hole that we're getting into. You see it in relationships where people are, well, you know, we've been dating for three, four, five, six, eight years. It doesn't seem to be going anywhere, but I've spent so much time on it. I can't walk away now. That just seems like a really bad idea. These, these guys have already found that they are not in control, that the sea is actually against them, that this is, in fact, what everyone would expect who knows anything about sailing in the Mediterranean Ocean in winter. But maybe we can go a little further. Maybe we'll make it to Phoenix somehow. And it turns out that they're not in control. And I think you and I have been painfully discovering in our time that people in government and people in the CDC and the WHO and, well, really all over the world were pretty confident that they had a plan. And we have seen that that is not working out for them. And everyone then starts to blame each other. Well, it's the government's fault. They didn't really listen to us. Well, it's the CDC's fault. They didn't really give us enough information. Well, the plan was flawed from the beginning because really, 
who are we to believe that we're actually in control? And if something as small as a virus can completely turn the world upside down, is it possible that we're not as in control of the things that we think we are, of much bigger things? I think so. In the ancient world, the biggest buildings they had, the biggest buildings they had were to the gods. People would go and they would bow down to the god of the harvest, the god of the economy. They would go and they would bow down to the god of medicine, to the god who can heal my body. They would go down to, well, government buildings, honestly. Because that's really how religion was all entangled with the way the world worked. If we pray, the people in power will give us what we want. And in our time, right, we don't have temples to foreign gods. That'd be silly. That would be superstitious. We're rational people. That's, that's how the world works. Our biggest buildings are for the government and for doctors, because those people know what they're doing. And it turns out in our time that nobody's really in control. And that's actually what's going to happen in the story. This is uh, verse 13. When a moderate south wind began to blow, they thought they could achieve their purpose. So they weighed anchor and began to sail past Crete, close to the shore. But soon a violent wind, called the Northeaster, rushed down from Crete. Since the ship was caught and could not be turned head-on into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven. By running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After hoisting it up, they took measures to undergird the ship, then fearing that they would run on the Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and so were driven. We were being pounded by the storm so violently that on the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, their own hands, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest raged, all hope of our being saved was lost. Who's in control? The storm is in control. That's who's in control at this point. And these guys have like this bright moment of hope when the wind is sort of with them, and then immediately the situation changes, and they get blown completely off course. This story makes me think about just sailing in general, which I think is this fascinating and very brave thing to do. I've been in boats before, but I've never sailed across the open ocean. I've been in sailboats, and I've been in the ocean, but I've always been near land. I like land. I'm used to land. I grew up here. It's very nice. And people who are willing to get in boats and really just sail to other countries, that's, there's some amazing bravery in that to me, even though they have things like electric lights and GPS and satellite phones and all sorts of conveniences like, you know, motors and multiple sails. But I have friends who will sail and they'll say, yeah, even with all that, though, you're just aware the sea is massive. It's vast. And you're completely at the mercy, honestly, of the wind and the waves and the weather. And every sane person knows no matter how much technology we have, you got to be good at reading the stars. you got to be good at looking at the world around you. You have to keep your eyes open, your wits about you, and you have to have the kind of humility that will teach you when to stop. And this is in the modern world with everything we have. It turns out we haven't conquered even little things like wind and water. And in the ancient world, these guys don't have electric lights. They don't have GPS. Their GPS is the stars. When it's cloudy, there is no GPS. The sun helps them find the direction. When it's cloudy, there is no GPS. They're just alone in the dark in a crazy storm. And by the way, there's no Coast Guard. And by the way, there's no hope. And their maps are really mediocre. And it's pitch black and they're being beaten by the storm. And it just feels like all hope is lost. To the point they start throwing cargo overboard, the very reason that some of them are on the boat to make money. They're now throwing that away. I just hope we escape with our lives. They're throwing away equipment that's really important to them. I just hope we escape with our lives. I hope we make it and the ship doesn't get destroyed. We don't know where we are. We don't know what's happening. This is unprecedented. We've lost all reference points. 
Does that sound familiar? We live in a world right now where it feels like the storm is in control. There are lots of different people saying lots of different things. The WHO says one thing, the CDC says one thing, the federal government says one thing, every state's government says different things, the media says lots of different things, and who knows who to believe and who knows what's really going on. The truth is it feels like COVID is in control. COVID decides whether I see my parents or my children. COVID will decide whether I get to eat out. COVID will decide whether my job closes or opens. COVID will decide what's going on. We're at the mercy of this very small thing. It's brought us to our knees. With all of our technology and all of our knowledge about the world, we are suddenly learning that we have been dealing in hubris for a long time, that we are not in control. And this situation for these guys is hopeless. And for you and I, I think if you believe the storm is in control, it feels pretty hopeless. But the story keeps going. This is verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul then stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and have not set sail from Crete, and have thereby avoided this damage and loss. I urge you now to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For last night there stood by me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before the emperor. Indeed, God has granted safety to all those sailing with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we will have to run aground on some island. I like that he just throws that in on the bit. Like, by the way, it's going to be a horrible shipwreck. We're going to be fine, but everything's going to be destroyed. Just this last little sentence in his speech. Who's in control? Paul, all of a sudden, which is really interesting. I, I like that it begins with, since they hadn't eaten for many days. Paul doesn't speak into this really hopeless situation at the beginning. Paul lets it get really hopeless. He lets these guys genuinely believe that not only are they not in control, the storm is in complete control. And he says, if, if that's the world you live in, one where you're just at the mercy of truly random and terrible things, I think that's really unsatisfying. And there's, there's another option for us. There's, there's the option that I've got, actually, that, that there's this God who cares about us, who cares about you and who cares about me, the God to whom I belong. And so Paul speaks into this situation with this authority and this confidence that doesn't really match the situation, right? Not only have they been lost at sea for a long time, not only is the situation bleak and terrible, not only is it dark outside with no hope of finding land, and who knows, maybe we're on our way to Africa right now to crash into the rocks. Paul is also a prisoner. The guy, the weird Jewish guy in chains, is speaking as though he's somehow in control of the situation. The prisoner has become the pastor. The captive has become the captain. It's the most amazing and ironic thing in this story that there's something that Paul has that no matter how stormy the situation is, he's calm on the inside. Where does he get that kind of peace? Where does that come from? That's what the sailors are wondering, and that's why they listen to him. That's why Julius is so interested in this weird guy. The answer really is that Paul is using his senses, by which I don't just mean he's using his eyes and his ears, though he is. He's looking around. He's listening to what God is saying. He's listening to what other people are saying. Paul has some senses that you and I also have. Common sense. A sense of God's presence. And a sense of purpose. Those things function like anchors for Paul in the storm. Even while these guys have put down their sea anchor and are still being driven by the wind, they're throwing on the brakes and the boat is moving anyway. So are all these senses that Paul is using, right? His common sense, which is really important. 
looked around before and made this speech, look, I don't think we should keep going. I think it's obvious to me and to you, this is a really dangerous situation. That wasn't a word from the Lord. That's just Paul, who's been on many boats in his life, lots of missionary journeys, who has met a lot of sailors, who's talking to these people who can sense their insecurity, who can see the situation, and he says, look, this is a bad idea. Just because we believe in Jesus does not mean we avoid using our brains. We use our brains. God gave us brains for a reason. Common sense is really important. When experts and scientists give us really good advice, like wash your hands, wash your hands. When experts and scientists give us really good advice, like wear masks and keep your distance from people who seem sick, yeah, that's probably really good advice. Let's use common sense. When experts and scientists say, avoid groups of 10 people, you go, well, does that mean that nine people are safe and 11 people are dangerous? No, they had to pick a number. These people are doing the best that they can with what they've got. Nine people may be very dangerous and 11 people may be safe. It's tough to say, really. It's not the number of people that's dangerous. Common sense is what we're being invited to in this season. And it's a really important thing. How do we, with all the knowledge we have, do the best that we can in the situation? How do we love our neighbors well? How do we follow Jesus well? How do we listen to really good advice knowing that everyone's limited and flawed, that I'm limited and flawed, and the only person who's in control in this situation is the God of the universe, the God, Paul says, to whom I belong, the God whom I worship. What does it look like to use our brains in this season? But our brains are not enough, right? Paul, in all of his common sense, also said, and I think people are going to die if we keep going. But now God speaks, right? God's presence shows up in the story, the sense of God's presence right next to Paul. An angel of the Lord stood by me last night, spoke to me clearly as I'm talking to you right now. And he said this, no one's going to die. So Paul speaks with this confidence that he didn't have before, because common sense told Paul we're all doomed. And yet God speaks a better word. God speaks this word of life and of grace. Not only are you not going to die, Paul, but I'm also going to give you the lives of all the people you're on board with. The ship will be destroyed, but everyone will be saved. This strong sense of God's presence, which Paul is always looking for, always cultivating, no matter how dangerous and difficult the season, spending time with God in prayer, spending time with God in worship. This is the God to whom he belongs, and that's why he's so confident in God's presence. But there's a third thing, and it's really important, a sense of purpose. Right? It's not just that Paul's using his brain. It's not just that God is talking to him. Paul also has a pretty decent idea of who God has called him to be and what God has called him to do. Do you have a strong sense of God's purpose? I think it's a worthwhile question. Do you know who God is calling you to be and what God is calling you to do? Because God's mission right, is so thoroughly ingrained in Paul that he goes, I know where I'm going, and there's no way I'm going to die before I get there. That's just not who God is. If God says, you're going to talk to the emperor, I don't die in a shipwreck before I get to the emperor. I have a job to do. And that's just a little bit of common sense and a little bit of who God is, but this really strong sense of purpose actually is guiding Paul in this season. And you and I, right, we talk all the time at this church about helping people discover the purpose that God has made each and every one of you for a purpose. Absolutely. That God has a plan and a purpose for your life, and you're never too old to find it, and you're never too young to figure out what it is. And we want to help you find that purpose and live into it, to live shaped by the gospel. That's what it looks like to live a life of purpose. Paul, in this season, because he's got this strong sense of purpose, is calm on the inside while everybody else is freaking out because they don't know who they are anymore now that they're not in control. And Paul never was under the illusion that he was in control of the situation. 
He's in the hands of God Almighty, and he's inviting all of these people to place their lives in God's hands. Look, I belong to this God, and you could too. In Acts, there are lots of speeches, lengthy ones, where Paul is trying to convince people to become Christians, where Paul is inviting people into this gospel in which you and I stand. But here in the boat, there's not a long speech. It's pretty quick, actually. Hey, we're going to live. There is a God. He cares about you, and he cares about me. And I know all this, because right? I'm using my eyes, my ears, my brain, my sense of his purpose, my understanding of who God is in the past, the present, and the future. And you and I, right, in a COVID season, are around all sorts of people who are really afraid. For very good reasons, it's a very dangerous situation. All of these senses don't say to Paul, well, and the storm doesn't matter. Paul is very aware this storm is dangerous and difficult, and there's going to be some real hardship and trouble and danger. He's just confident that God's there with him, that God's got a purpose and a plan for him, that, that he belongs to God, and that's the only thing that really matters, no matter how dangerous the situation and so what happens in the story is pretty amazing. When the 14th night has come, this is verse 27, as we were drifting across the Sea of Adria about midnight, the soldiers suspected they were nearing land. So they took soundings and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took soundings and found 15 fathoms. Fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. These hardened pagan sailors, these confident government bureaucrats, believe Paul. And because they believe Paul, and it's midnight, and they get suspicious, maybe we're near land, they start dropping weights on a rope, and they find that the water is getting shallower and shallower and shallower. And if they believe Paul that, you know, there is a God, and that he cares about us, they also believe Paul that the boat is about to get wrecked. And so they're very concerned that this not happened at midnight. They start throwing all of the anchors out of the boat, all of these things, actually, that could ground them, that could slow them down, and they just pray they pray for dawn, which of course is a silly thing to do, to pray that the sun will rise, because the sun rises every morning. It's the kind of thing we can just expect about the world. But these guys have had this really dramatic change, really dramatic change in the way they see the world and the way they see their situation. They realize they are not in control. They realize their expertise is of no value. They realize their predictions about the future are meaningless. All that matters is that there's a God who's listening to their prayers. And so they are in there in the middle of the night praying for dawn to come. And Paul actually is going to take action. And I'm going to skip ahead to verse 34. Paul says, Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will help you survive. For none of you will lose a hair from your heads. After he'd said this, he took bread. And giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And then all of them were encouraged and took food for themselves. We were, in all, 276 persons in the ship. So what happens in this story, in the middle of the night while everyone's praying that day would come and they would survive the night, Paul says, guys, we should probably eat, common sense. And then he starts talking the language of communion that you and I probably recognize, right? But he takes bread and he breaks it. He gives thanks. And he probably, he doesn't say this, talks about the body of Christ that was broken for you. And then he takes a cup and he probably says... The blood of Christ was shed for you. He talks a little bit about the gospel and they have communion in the middle of the night, in the middle of a boat, when they're desperately hungry. Because the thing that they're really hungry for, the thing that they're really longing for, is to find God in the storm. And that's what happens. They, none of them lose a hair from their heads. God is absolutely with them. And each of these people learn, well, a little bit more about common sense. Maybe we were never in control to begin with. A little bit more about their sense of purpose. That God actually has a plan for me 
and that he's not done with me because he's got a plan for my life. But each of them really gets a strong sense of God's presence as God preserves them in the storm, as God shows how in control he is. The ship, by the way, will be destroyed and everyone will live. And the story continues because this is the Bible and it's a fantastic story. But that's how these guys, these pagan sailors, found God in the storm. Would you pray with me?